You're listening to a podcast from New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. So we've seen the past couple weeks, um, Jesus has been in some non-stop conflict uh, with those who are challenging him. A couple weeks ago, we saw that Jesus, his authority was challenged. We saw that uh, Will preached that several weeks ago. We saw that he, uh, he was given a political test by the Pharisees and the Herodians, testing, uh, his, uh, questioning him about taxes. Last week, we saw a theological test about heaven and about marriage. And today, we see Jesus is given another test, but it is a legal one. I want to reread verse 28, if, if you will. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well and asked him which commandment is the most important of all. Now, the Gospel of Matthew gives us a little bit more detail about this individual. The, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that this individual wasn't just a scribe, but a lawyer, right? This person is a legal scholar uh, when it comes to the law. And uh, they were in, like legal scholars do, or any scholars do, they like to debate difficult topics. Now, this was uh, not meant to be an easy question, right? This was a, a tough question. We, we do this all the time, asking, in fact, we're somewhat obsessed with uh, questions like, who is the greatest? Um, real quick, I'm so sorry. I think we were supposed to release kids. I apologize. If you're a kid, uh, kid, go. Uh, me, Tina, in the back. <laughs> it's all right, it's all right. So we, we are obsessed with trying to determine uh, who is the greatest? Who is the GOAT? We see it in sports. I know in our own home, we're not uh, obsessed with, with sports, but we are obsessed with uh, Disney figures. So Maddox is very much about trying to determine who is the greatest superhero of all time. Now, I, I happen to, um, my, my daughter, I think feeling a little bit left out, decided she wanted her own um, conversation. Who was the greatest princess? Uh, of all time. And so what we did, I, I love Excel sheets. So we created Excel sheets upon Excel sheets with different uh, topics, that, with different grades that we gave each princess at different levels, trying to determine. We spent weeks doing this. I'm not even kidding. We, got, we called in aunts and uncles to try to get their thoughts on who was the greatest princess of all time. If you're curious what it was, it was end up being Pocahontas. It doesn't matter what, if you agree with that, it's just that's the way it is. We've determined it for the course of the universe. So, but this is something that we do all of the time. We try to determine what is the greatest, right? We debate and we challenge, and humans are creatures made to ask questions, right? We're, we're made to think. We're made to observe and analyze, and naturally as fallen people, we take this beautiful propensity to question, and we often make it silly and, and useless. Even uh, in, in the medieval period, right, I, I think this is somewhat what they were known for. They would ask these uh, silly questions. The academic, uh, academics of the day would ask questions. This is one of the most famous ones. They'd ask, how many angels could dance at the head of a pen? And they would sit around and they would debate this question. And really what it was testing was how clever were you and how convincing of an answer could you conjure up with all your cleverness. Rabbi Hillel, we've talked a bit about him in this passage, a, a very, very popular rabbi of the day uh, was asked a similar question, tell me the whole meaning of the Torah while I stand on, on one leg, right? Rabbis were asked to give the complete meaning of the Old Testament as quickly as you possibly can. 
And so the debates and the scribes are having what might seem like a silly, and maybe it was a silly debate, as if, if we could have a little more details of what they were saying. Maybe we're testing how clever each of them could be. There were over 600 laws of God, and they vary in different degrees. Some of them very different. Some of them negative laws, don't do this. Some of them positive laws, you must do these things. So naturally, I'm assuming some want to test the cleverness of Jesus. They want to see how well first do you know scriptures, but also how clever are you? How much of a legal scholar are you as it pertains to the law? It doesn't necessarily seem hostile here. Truly, it seems as if he's curious what the thoughts of Jesus were. And so Jesus is going to give him his thoughts. And what we're going to see, if you're a note taker, I have three points. We have love God supremely, love people genuinely, and finally love will work. So let's look at our first point, love God supremely. Look at verse 29 through 30. It says, that Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now what stood out to the Jews as they heard this is this is called the Shema. Right? You see in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, this was given several places to leaders in Israel. This is something that the youngest Jew would have learned, they would have recited, they would have memorized it was a cornerstone of daily life, as this was partly what they prayed. So maybe how we treat the Lord's Prayer, perhaps, or, or John 3.16, where people even outside the church are familiar with a particular passage. The Shema was truly the basics of the faith, and Jesus takes them back to these very basics of the entire law. Simply put, love your God supremely. Right? Nothing else. Right? Your God is one. And to worship him is to exclude the worship of all other things. There's no room for divided affection or allegiance in the kingdom of God. But what is of the utmost importance is the motive behind the obedience of this commandment. And not only to say love the Lord with all your God, right? It is, it is the motive that's driving this obedience is love. And I harp on this a bit because I think we get caught up looking at what we're doing often without thinking why we're doing it. We go through worshipful motions with self-serving motives. I've tried as a teacher for a long time to preach to students about the motivations of, of, of learning, right? I say, listen, A's are good, but A's shouldn't be the motive in, in education. Your motive can't simply be, man, I really want to get an A. The motive needs to be learning. But I've seen students, right, who, who've learned the mechanics of school. They have good studying practices. They got straight A's, but they didn't really learn anything. They learned how to be a student. 
because their motive was simply to get an A and not learn. And I think that's often what can be said of Christians. We've learned how to be a Christian. We've learned the mechanics of what we're supposed to do without actually drawing closer to our God and loving him with our entire being. Because our motives at the end are self-serving. The motive of obedience to God is too often to get a grab bag of blessings and rather it ought to be love. Hosea 6.6 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He wants you to be motivated by love of him. And anything else is worthless and it's not what he desires. He doesn't want empty routine sacrifices that are often given. In counseling, I try to use this as an example because I think this principle um, is seen in what Jesus is going to say and what Will read about the second greatest commandment. But I think you could see it in marriages and in friendships and all sorts of rela- human relationships. But uh, I, I met, so today is my wife. It's our anniversary. Um, we married for 12 years. And so we had, I, I just imagine if I brought my wife flowers, and you could put yourself in your shoes. If you had brought um, your spouse or someone you love, you, you got them flowers, and they said, oh, my goodness, you got me flowers. Why would you do this? And you said, well, I'm hoping for some physical affection. That's why I got you these flowers. You might find yourself maybe on the couch. You might find yourself a lack of physical affection. If I said to my wife, oh, I got you flowers. Jeremy, you got me flowers? Why'd you do that? I said, well, I didn't want you to get mad. I didn't want to get in trouble, so I got you these flowers. Again, she probably would be pretty frustrated at that. Worse yet, if I said, listen, I got you flowers. Why'd you get me those? It's my job, right? It's my duty. I'm your husband, that's what I'm supposed to do, so I've read. They may, she may not be happy with that answer. Why does she, what does she want the motive to be behind my works? She wants it to be love. I got you this gift because I love you, I cherish you, and this is an overflow of my heart. That's what she would want. In this command, there is love conveyed that shows us that our devotion to God should dominate our emotions, it should direct our thoughts, and even the very course of all of our actions. The purpose, of course, of this law is to point us to love, to love the heart of God, to love his holiness, and to love his law, and to go down a rabbit trail. I think often many of us as, as New Testament Christians, we lose the importance and the beauty of the law. We ought to love the law. It is perfect. And it shows his heart and what he wants from you. A fully devoted disciple. It points you to the love, the grace that he has lavished on each of us. And if we seek to love him with our entire being, we will seek the rest. We will love the true God with our entire being. And we will seek to purge idols 
from our lives rather than justify them. We'll not invoke his name flippantly. We will Sabbath and rest because we can trust the things are in his control. We'll honor and love our parents. We'll not lie. We'll not murder. We'll not steal. We'll be faithful spouses, grateful for what we have. We'll not covet. It's why it's the greatest commandment. Because the one who loves the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and all of his strength seeks holiness out of a love for his or her creator and redeemer. A full devotion to God will have disciples pursue obedience of the moral law out of love. And when we subject ourselves to his will, we'll find ourselves loving what God loves. Hating what God hates. But when we love what God loves, it leads us to the second commandment, which is to love people genuinely. Look at verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. First, I love that Jesus goes a step further, doesn't he? He says, they ask him, okay, what is the greatest? And not only does he tell them what the greatest is, he also tells them what the second greatest is. He says, you want to know the greatest? I'll give you one more. I'll take you a bit further. It's because these two things go hand in hand, right? You love God supremely. You will love his people genuinely. Loving genuinely, by the way, does not mean that you become accepting of all things, of all actions, turning your eyes from sin. Loving your neighbor is seeking to serve and edify for Christ's glory, right? It's investing in people because they're image bearers or members of Christ's body. I think I've struggled a little bit with this concept. People who say, I love the Lord, but not a big fan of the church, or I love Jesus, but are deeply, deeply unfaithful to the body of Christ. I want to read to you what the Apostle John has to say. And it's probably a harder stance than what many of us would say, which should be a problem. Look at 1 John 4, 19 through 21. It says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I hope you hear that clearly. Now, you might say, I don't hate my brother, but listen, hate comes in all different fashions. It's not all aggressive. Some of it, hate can be apathy. If you're apathetic towards the body of Christ, that is hateful. And the Apostle John says, you do not love the Lord, despite what you might say. Despite what other people may say, if you're apathetic towards Christ or Christ's body, you do not love the head. Your affection and love for the church, or lack thereof, is a direct indicator for your love of Christ himself. So some will speak of loving God but hating his bride, but what we see is the two cannot coexist. You cannot hate or be apathetic to God's people and still say you love him supremely. 
And no doubt, it's, it is difficult to love, sometimes deeply frustrating, especially, I think, given how privileged many of us have become. But even in our church, right, there is a diversity in backgrounds. Now, many of you may know each other, may not know each other. I know most of you. There's a great diversity in, in political thought, in worship preferences. There's a great diversity in the body of Christ. And now, rolling two campuses together, it gets even more diverse and more difficult. But obedience here is difficult because we're prone to love ourselves. That's why when we see this commandment, we, we utterly, we know we failed, thus we need the grace of God because we are prone to love ourselves, our own preferences, our own desires and wants. To embrace that difficulty of such diversity means we must embrace what God has told us to do, which is deny yourself and to love others. Of course, motivated from a love of God and his mission. And what you will find as you love and serve one another is that God intentionally has brought different people together who normally would never be together or congregate together, except they have one thing in common. A love for their God, who are a people who are united in the gospel, who are united in mission to disciple and to evangelize. Now, I've been able to see this pretty firsthand. Um, I don't know if you've never noticed, Will and I look a little bit different. The physical uh, differences are, are quite obvious uh, between Will and I, um, but if you knew us even more, we're, we're, very, we're very different in, in many different ways. He is an absolute social butterfly. Uh, anytime we go to any sort of conference or anything, he is wanting to meet everybody and be with everybody, and as soon as I walk into a room, my first thing is, okay, how long do I have to be here, and what is the quickest exit? I, I'm, a, I'm a hermit by nature and, and don't like being around a, a large group of people, especially people that I, I don't know. I get, I get nervous, small talk intimidates me. But he's different, right? He's, not only is he physically different, he is, his, he is a different human with completely different interests. Completely. Every, I, I don't know if he's wearing camo now, but I feel like everything he owns has some camo on it. I don't own a thing of camo, not one. He loves administration. He's good at it. I, I can tell you I've already lost my keys this morning. And that's, that's not because I'm emotional. That's just because I'm me. I love counseling. He is passionate about evangelism. I am passionate about discipleship. But with working with Will, what I've learned is that two incredibly different saints can pastor most effectively when working together. Now listen, that, that, that goes beyond us. The Lord has given you different giftings because you work best when you work with people different than you. The Lord has gifted each of his saints differently and he's grown us differently but for one purpose. And of course, we're not called to love our neighbors who look like us or who have the same interests. 
but to love and serve even those who are very different and even those who are very difficult to love. So church, love your neighbor. Looks like genuinely praying for one another, genuinely serving one another, genuinely investing in one another, even holding each other accountable and being vulnerable. And we as the body of Christ, we're put together and made new by our God and out of a loving worship of Him, that's what we do. We serve each other. And finally, we see that love will work. So Jesus gives the first two commandments. And think, look at the scribe response in verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is the one and there is no other besides him. So it's interesting. The scribe recognizes that Jesus affirms the uniqueness and the exclusive nature of God. And he actually continues. He says, And to love him with all your heart and with all uh, the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's much more. Again, we see this man affirms what Jesus says. Right? To love supremely is more. It's greater than all the religious customs. And that's not to say the religious customs were not important. Right? They were. God gave the religious customs that he's speaking of. The, the sacrifices. God gave these things. They were very important. But the, all the religious activity is useless if the love of God is not behind it. Like baptism, marriage, communion, corporate gatherings, and all of these things that God commands are very important. But without a proper motive and focus, the power and beauty behind it, it's, it's missed and it's empty. Let's continue. In verse 34, he says, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And Jesus offers these words, like soaked in love, but imagine what he's really saying. To the scribe, these words have to be a bit haunting. You're not far from the kingdom of God. This guy had all the religious credentials. He valued the law of God. He was a deeply religious man. He was involved in all the religious activity and pomp and circumstance that, the, that was taking place. Here's the crazy thing. He even agreed with Jesus. He agreed on those first, on the greatest commandments. He knew the right answer. But what does Jesus say to him? You're not far, but you're not in. I want, you, I want that to sink in with you. He says to the scribe, you're not far. But the scary news was that he was not in. It's this, the horseshoe hand grenade saying. I don't play much of either one of them, so I'm a bit unfamiliar with it all. But from what I understand, it's very much like the uh, corn in a sack game that's pretty popular. 
Now think of what Jesus is really saying. You've observed all of this religious activity, but unless something changes, you will not observe the kingdom. You will not see or be in the kingdom of God. You're close, but you're not in. To be not far from the kingdom is still a chasm that you, by all your efforts, cannot cross. And you can get all the rituals right, but without a love of Christ, the religious functions are meaningless. And there are many people you know in this same place. They're not far, but they're not in. My prayer is that in love of your neighbor, as your brother's keeper, you seek them out. And you reach the missing and you invest in their life, praying that God gives the growth that leads to regeneration. And no doubt we have family members. We're clothed in religiosity. They're not far from the kingdom, but they're not in. And there are no doubt, some of you this morning, who this perfectly describes. You got married in a church. Right? You did the whole baptism thing. You've done the whole communion thing. You've grown up your whole life around all the religious stuff, just as the scribe. You, had, you have the mechanics down. But the truth may be you're close to the kingdom, but you're not in. Would you recall in eternity many who will say to the Lord, God, we did miracles in your name. We've preached you. And they hear, depart from me, I never knew you. That is what those who are not far from the kingdom will hear, right? There is no mulligan. There's no do-over. The motive for why we approach Christ the motive for why we do everything we do, it matters. Unless you're covered in grace, unless you understand your depravity and your need for mercy, you will not love the Lord. My prayer is that I love of each other will cause us to invest and disciple one another, that it will cause us to reach those who are not far from the kingdom. And I pray that we can have a genuine love of people and that this will push us to serve, invest, and leverage what we have for God's glory and their good. A love of God and neighbor will overflow, of course, in works as we labor for the eternal kingdom. So church, let's be motivated by love as we remember the God who first loved us, whose love worked for our redemption, whose love worked for our rescue, whose love was clearly on display as the Lord showed his love for us that while we were Still sinners, Christ died for our transgressions.
So at this time, we're going to prepare our heart and minds for communion. And my request is that you self-reflect. Self-reflect where we have given less than all, all the alls that God tells us to. Where we've missed the point of our existence. where we've neglected the very basics and foundations of our faith, that we are to love God with all that we are and to love his bride genuinely. So church, at this time, let this be a time of repentance, but also a time of celebration. Because we don't celebrate the good news of of self-effort, but a king who died in our place to secure us in his everlasting covenant, whose body was given over and torn for us, whose blood was poured out for our sins. So let us pray and go to his throne of grace. And when I'm done praying, I, want, I, I beg you and urge you to talk and repent and celebrate to your God. And when you're ready, I ask that you come forth and take communion. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Make sure to check out past sermons on the app.